Vocational schools were once dismissed as a second-tier option for students who struggled academically in traditional high schools. But Massachusetts vocational schools have surged in popularity in recent years. Many now have a reputation for offering both top-notch academics and hands-on learning that can lead to a career in a skilled trade. With that popularity, however, has come a growing debate over how students get admitted to a Voctech high school. There is more demand for vocational high school seats than there is supply, and state regulations have allowed the schools to use selective entry criteria in admitting students. They can look at applicants' middle school grades, attendance record, and other factors. The schools say this ensures that seats go to students who are best able to handle the demands of their program and benefit from it. But critics say the system ends up denying seats to some of those students who would benefit most from vocational high schools, students who may not have excelled at traditional academics, but might thrive by pursuing more hands-on study. Critics turned up the heat earlier this month when they filed a formal complaint with the U.S. Department of Education, charging that Massachusetts vocational schools are violating federal civil rights and education laws by disproportionately denying seats to special education students, students of color, English language learners, and low-income students. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine. Today on the podcast, we're taking a look at the debate over vocational school admission policies. Joining me is Karen McGuire. She's the superintendent of the Tri-County Regional Vocational Technical High School in Franklin. Superintendent McGuire, welcome. Thank you very much. Also with us is State Senator John Cronin. He's a Democrat from Fitchburg who represents that city and nine other communities in north central Massachusetts. Welcome, Senator Cronin. Well, it's great to be here with you today. So, Senator Cronin, you've been among the loudest voices calling for change in the vocational admission school policies. What's wrong with the system that's now in place? So I think right now um, our vocational school admission system is under a lot of stress. There were more than 22,000 completed applications for 10,500 seats in the last admission cycle. And we've continued to allow school districts to use selective criteria that we know discriminates against four protected populations of students. English language learners, economically disadvantaged students, students with disabilities, and students of color. Uh, And we, we have that data. And that's got really important implications for our communities. And I argue and advocates, um, you know, have really said with one voice over the past few years that these policies create meaningful harm in our communities. Uh, They mean that kids who come from disadvantaged backgrounds don't have access to really the singular opportunities that our incredible career and vocational schools provide to teach kids a trade that they can take into the labor force and bring their family out of poverty or or chart their their path to the middle class. So I I think there's a lot of places that no matter where you are on this issue, we agree, we need more capacity. How do we deliver it and how do we deliver it fairly is something that we we really do need to confront as a state. And uh, Superintendent McGuire, you're familiar with the, you know, the arguments that have been uh, made in recent years that the policies in place are, you know, really unfair and harming kids who might benefit the most from vocational schools. What's your, uh, what's your response to those criticisms? 
let me just give you a little bit about my background um, before I, I get into that a little bit. But um, I've, I've been involved in vocational education for most of my life. Um, in, in 1999, I started my career as an educator at Southeastern Vocational Technical High School in Easton. Uh, that school serves nine communities, including the city of Brockton. I, I held various positions at Southeastern over my 23 years there. I was the director of the alternative school program that we had. I was the ELL program director for a time while I was there, uh, vice principal, uh, among other things. I started at Tri-County a little bit over a year ago. Uh, we have 11 communities at the in the Tri-County uh, school district that serve kids from North Attleboro all the way up to Sherburne. Um, you know, and as a member of this vocational community, I'm very aware of the perceived discrepancy in the admissions policies that we have. Um, we, we have some concerns though, and, and we've made this very clear that um, the data that we're using, uh, I'm not exactly sure that the data can be called 100% accurate data. The bottom line is that we, no matter what, uh, selection criteria or, or minimum standard as, as we like to call it, um, or, or a lottery will still have 10,000 students that'll be on the outside looking in no matter how you shuffle the seats. And while a lottery might be perceived as a politically expedient process, it certainly um, would make people feel like we've done something. But at the end, um, all we're really doing is rearranging seats and you still have a lot of kids on the outside looking in. Uh, the criteria that we use now allows students to demonstrate that they're truly interested and that that's a real thing. That's something that we really have to consider at career and tech schools. This includes counselor recommendations from the sending schools, along with an interview with those students uh, to see what their interest really is. Um, the minimum standard really is about, it's not really about selective criteria, if you will. It's, um, I like, I think we've been perceived a little bit as, as trying to, to be Harvard, uh, but that's just misinformation. It's actually a blind process uh, where students, uh, their academic record comes in. We, we don't know if they're EL students. We don't know if they're, special ed students. We don't know what color the student is or any of those things during the application process. And it's not until they're admitted that we do. One of the things I can't stress enough is that it's important in vocational schools that the students that are here are safe to be here and that they can demonstrate an ability to control themselves uh, and control themselves around others. The machines here are very, very real. Uh, they're, not, they're not fake machines. They're real industry standard machines. Uh, the process is to train students to go to work in the real world so we have those pieces of machinery uh, for that reason. So, Senator Cronin, as you've said and as Superintendent McGuire is is saying, uh, you know, we don't have enough seats. So if we have sort of a, you know, scarce supply, um, what what what's wrong with the argument that, that sort of figuring out, trying to figure out kids who are going to uh, do best using this uh this resource and and even at the at the most basic level being safe using it that that may be that may make some sense well i, I do want to respond to the idea that it's a blind process because i think it, if we're saying it's a blind process you know we're we're implicating that it's a fair process but we we can't continue to be willfully blind to how the selective criteria we use uh, impacts our communities. And I'll, I'll, I'll paint just kind of a, a human picture at a local level for, for my community. So my trade school has 18 sending communities. There's about 2,000 eligible eighth graders who have the option to apply to a trade school every year. Of that population of 2,000 eligible eighth graders, about 44% of them 
are what the state categorizes as economically disadvantaged. And that, that means they come from a household that interacts with a public safety net program. It means they get their, their health care from MassHealth. It means food on the table comes from SNAP. Uh, it means their, um, you know, their caregivers pay their rent through transitional assistance. When that population, that 44% of, you know, kids who grow up in abject poverty to working poor households apply to our vocational schools, they get in 37% of the time. When the other 56% of the population applies, they get in closer to 65% of the time. So I think we need to recenter our admissions policies to really focus on the potential that vocational schools have uh, to, to create and provide economic opportunity to the working poor in our communities. Um, and I think that's just a really, really important uh, point and distinction to make. And so, you know, it's a blind process so far as if we make the policy choice to be willfully blind to its implications, because we have really good data about who these kids are that aren't getting in. And it's important for us to acknowledge that the kids on the outside looking in right now are the working poor. And I think what a lottery would do is make the system fair. And that means that it doesn't matter if you come from a household that's on transitional assistance or your upper middle class, your chances of getting a seat to a vocational school and, and a potential ticket to the middle class for a lot of kids in my community that need it um, is equal and fair. And I think there's uh, also a causal relationship between selectivity and demand. Uh, and, that, and a lot of the demand is artificial. There's a lot of really top performing students who want to go to our, our trade schools because of their academic prestige, what's been buttressed by really 20 years of uh, a selective admissions regime. Um, and I'll just sort of add when, when you mentioned, Senator Cronin, this idea of a lottery that you are uh, co-sponsoring legislation uh, in the current session of the legislature that, that would do just that um, and, and sort of direct the schools to use a lottery. Now, this is also, you know, the, the policies around admission don't need legislation. They're overseen by the state uh, education department, and, and they have made some changes a couple of years ago, some some modifications in the admission regulation, and they could go further and, and, and you know, adopt essentially the proposal that you and some colleagues have for a lottery if they wanted to. Um, you know, we haven't yet really heard from the uh, state officials uh, since this uh, complaint was filed with the U.S. Department of Education earlier this month, you know, what what action they might be contemplating. But Superintendent McGuire, what about this idea that, you know, I understand what you're saying, that, that you know, that reviewing the applications is done in a blind fashion in terms of the background of the students, but there, there it does appear that the data show that when you kind of pull back the curtain to look at all those factors, that students are really not getting admitted in sort of equal share, uh, you know, based on these different factors. And that in some ways, I think as a lot of people have argued, it looks a little bit upside down that kids from, uh, you know, sort of lower income households, maybe households where there's not kind of an expectation of or a background among parents with going to college or four-year colleges, those kids are having a harder time getting in. And those are kids that, you know, people might think would would do best in a voc tech school or might see a pathway toward a career there that they may not see in in the district high school. I mean, the other thing that I always am struck by is by definition, our district high schools that, you know, there's no 
selection criteria for admission when you live in a community you can go to that high school they they sort of become by default kind of college preparatory high schools because they don't really ready kids directly for much of anything other than going on to higher education so that's what kids who sort of don't seem to cut it for vocational admissions they're left in these district high schools where presumably the bar they're aiming for is even higher it's to kind of matriculate directly into a into a into a into a higher education college program. So the, the, the first the piece I just want to point out too is that within all of these regional vocational technical school districts, they have district agreements that the school committee um, fifty years ago voted on, and in, in some of those cases, they allocate numbers of seats by community. So that's mm-hmm. a big piece that that we need to keep in mind. In uh, in this district where I am, for example, there are eleven towns that that divide these seats based on the percentage of population of eighth graders. A, a school like Southeastern, I'll go back to that school again because it sort of represents more of what we're talking about. Where Tri County, where we're located geographically, really isn't um, really isn't in a situation where um, the students of color or students uh, that are EL students have difficulty. Uh, we do, though, at this school have 34% special ed students. And I, I don't want us to lose sight of that, that traditionally vocational schools have been places where special ed students have been successful and they continue to be. Special ed, though, is like a bell curve. And this is this is one thing I think that needs to, we, we do need to pay some attention to. And that what I mean by that is Special ed services are put in place to give students access to curriculum. They, they have a difficulty in some way, and they need to have an accommodation in order to have access to the curriculum. What that really means is we need to help kids pass MCAS. That's what it translates to, because that still is the line. Uh, that, is, that is the determination, whether or not you graduate, really, along with whatever your local uh, requirements are. But MCAS statewide is for everyone, including the Votech schools. 20 years ago, when MCAS came into existence, the Votex schools actually pushed against the state and tried to have an exemption for the students in our schools that they wouldn't have to pass MCAS. Because to tell you the truth, back then, the thought was that they wouldn't be able to. The state said, nope, luckily. The state said, nope, you're gonna need to have the same standard as everybody else. They're gonna get a diploma from the state of Massachusetts, they need to pass MCAS. So over that 20 year period, we've worked very, very hard to bring the academic rigor curriculum and all of the programming here in this, these schools uh, to the same place as our academic counterparts in, in the sending communities. And we've done a great job. We're, we're, we're the national model for how vocational schools should work. We do that through vo- both vocational program and academic uh, programs combined together. So, so again, still at 34% special ed, at Tri-County, but certainly servicing the students that that come here. To the example of the EL kids and the kids, uh, students of color, I'll go back to my my, uh, prior district, which was the the Tri-County, sorry, the Southeastern school community. Um, 1,600 kids, significant waiting list. Uh, That school does not proportion seats by town. The nine communities, including the city of Brockton, that make up Southeastern, it's just a rotating, you know, again, the minimum criteria, student supply, it's it's um, a motivator to the students that are in seventh and eighth grade. They know they have to come to school. They know that they have to work their best. They know that they have to really um, aim themselves to, to, to go to Southeastern. The 
two years ago or so, when we first started talking about a lottery, using the Power BI program, we actually simulated a lottery system at Southeastern to see what would happen. And the subgroups actually went down. So the number of students that were EL represented, the number of students that were students of color, the female population, which at Southeastern is 50-50, uh, but more boys apply, all of the subgroups actually went down, which was an interesting thing for us to see. So in a situation like that, a lottery would not be beneficial to the students that were uh, from EL families and the students that were students of color. And I'll just, I'll finish up and then I know, I know that, you know, uh, uh, Senator Cronin will, will want to weigh in on this, but 14 years ago or so, it, it came to, uh, just from our own examination of what our school was, uh, it, we, we noticed that we didn't have an EL population that was significant compared to Brockton. And we asked ourselves, well, why is this? Why, why is it that we don't have EL kids here at, at Southeastern? Uh, we went back to the sending communities and asked, why don't we have the EL kids? And their response was they didn't believe that the EL kids would be successful at our school because their parents didn't want them to come. Uh, and, and years of being the EL director and, and peeling back what that really was is that there was a misunderstanding among the community of the offerings of vocational schools, particularly the Haitian kids that make, make up a lot of Southeastern. Uh, the parents wanted them to, to be successful. And in their, in their mind's eye, they saw vocational school not as an opportunity, but more of a place where you go if, if, um, if, you, if you don't really um, need an opportunity, if you will. There was a lot of community work that had to be done in order to be able to make uh, the school looked at in a positive way amongst the, the community members. The other piece is access. Southeastern has a great relationship with the communities that send students to Southeastern. Uh, not all communities are afforded that relationship. I'll use New Bedford as an example. Uh, New Bedford is one of the schools that we talk about, uh, um, you know, the disproportionality. But if you look at the access, the people from New Bedford Vogue cannot go into New Bedford Public Schools to present to the students there about the opportunities. We need to be able to do uh, more as far as access. There is a bill, and I know that uh, Senator Cronin signed on to, to the bill. Uh, thank you for that. The support of um, that the legislation would support access to vocational school information for kids that are in grades seven and eight. It's very important. And Senator Cronin, I mean, there is this tussle that you hear about with, with, uh, Vogue school saying there's complaints that they're not admitting kids from these backgrounds, but then uh, you hear from Vogue school saying that districts don't want them coming in and recruiting. I mean, there, there, there's really this, it seems like there's kind of a fight going on. I would say everybody is entitled to their own opinion, but there's only one set of facts. And the, the facts and the data really clearly show that there isn't a demand problem uh, across the state. And there isn't an issue in protected classes of population applying to access career and vocational education. The problem and the opportunity gap really is in admissions. And the, the data really backs that up. What I'd also like to say, and, um, and, and I've been, frankly, a little disappointed in MAVA's uh, messaging on this. And just fill in for folks, MAVA is the uh, acronym for the State Association of of vocational school leaders, right? Correct. Yeah. And and I think um, there's been a lot of misinformation in their public statements about lotteries and lotteries efficacy. So there are 28 um, schools, uh, vocational schools and agricultural schools in the Commonwealth. 27 of 28 continued to use selective criteria this year. 
Um, the school that didn't and instituted a lottery was ACIBET. And ACIBET between 2021 and 2023 showed more gains uh, to close opportunity gaps than anywhere else. Worcester Tech used a modified lottery. Um, and they, you know, they excluded from their tier one lottery students with 10 or more absences, but they completely eliminated opportunity gaps for protected classes of students in, in the face of really incredible demand. Um, so lotteries worked. It's, it's not a theory that, that lotteries work. It's, it's been proven. Uh, and again, we're at really an inflection point here where we can either make a choice to close these opportunity gaps, and that's a cost-neutral choice, or we can be willfully blind, blind and, and let them go on. And Superintendent McGuire, I guess one thing I'm, I'd like to kind of hear your take on is this issue about, about sort of uh, awarding seats to students who've sort of shown some clear interest and sort of determination to to you know, be good candidates for these seats, um, there seems like there's kind of a uh, sort of a chicken and egg thing going on. I mean, you have students who may not have thrived or done well in middle school. They may have had attendance problems, and you know, what if those those issues relate directly to you know the reasons why staying on and going on to their traditional high school would be a bad fit, and maybe the Vogue Tech School would be a better fit. I mean, these are you know, we're talking about middle school kids. So these are what, 11 and 12 year old kids. I mean, you hear tons of stories about, about people who were total screw ups in college, and then went on to like, huge achievement, you know, in in life. So the idea that, you know, we're going to kind of peg, which 11 and 12 year olds really are ready for this program, uh, you know, you can see the argument that that, uh, that it seems to be putting a lot of a lot on these kids and that, um you know, maybe it's just too, you know, it's a little unfair to try to do that sorting at that age. Yeah. So, so to, just to back to the lottery, just for one, one more second, you know, the, the select, the, uh, the lottery uh, that, that we spoke about implementing last year at the state level, I, I'm on the state um, advisory, vocational advisory board to the board of education. And when we talked about the lottery, it was just last year that those changes were made to those two schools that were dipping their toe, if you will. Uh, you know, it is a process that we've all talked about for a couple of years now to be able to see what is the best thing to do for kids. And when we talk about the students that arrive at our door, yeah, you're absolutely right, Michael, not everyone knows that they want to be whatever it is that they think they want to be. And we go through a process of exploratory with the students where they where they um, try everything and then and that they maybe thought that they wanted to be a plumber. But then, as it turns out, they want to be a graphic artist. You, you just don't know. Um, but the I think that the real proof in the pudding is that when the students come here, if they're coming here because they want to be leaving with 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 some sort of a credential that will help them get to work as opposed to just leaving somewhere else. And that's where the big difference is. When, when, when students are, are arriving on our doorstep because they just don't want to be where they are. Uh, and that becomes a problem because it's not fixing what the issue is either. And that's a bigger, that's a bigger conversation, I know. And where do you think uh, we sort of go from here, Superintendent McGuire? We, you know, the, the issue sort of isn't going away. There's, you know, now presumably the Federal Education Department, uh, you know, may is certainly going to review this complaint. I don't know what action they'll take. You know, there's there's you know sort of parallel pressure coming 
uh, just directly to the state education department and its leaders and now through legislation. Is there, uh, I mean, is there room for, for more discussion and more uh, consideration of changes to the policies or do you, do you and your fellow vocational school leaders feel like, um, you know, like the system in place now is working and, and these are kind of misguided efforts to sort of uh, fix something that's not broken? Yeah, so we, we it's, it's a conversation that continues to happen. I just, I, I really want to make sure that, that we understand that, that we're on the same page with conversations do need to happen. We always are evaluating programs and policies and, you know, the list goes on and on. I, um, I, you know, my easy answer is to say build more schools, right? But that's not, that's not obviously, that's, that's, you know, although in the Western part of the state, I think we could stand to see, um, you know, another structure, but that's, again, um, there, there have, there, there has been some movement lately, you know, you talk about students with, with attendance issues. Uh, one of the programs that we've implemented throughout the Commonwealth is an after dark, if you will, an after dark program where students on the waiting list, particularly students who have attendance issues, uh, we're, we've offered a delayed school day to them in some communities like Brockton, for instance, students that were having an issue with, with coming to school on time. Um, as, as part of the After Dark program, we started their school day a couple of hours later. Uh, they would come to school at about 10 o'clock and then in the afternoon take buses to Southeastern and participate in uh, vocational programs. And after three years would have enough uh, hours to be able to get the credential. Uh, it, it helped with the attendance piece for, for students who had difficulty coming to school on time. And it also helped with the, uh, with the waiting list uh, piece. Uh, so perhaps programming like that would be more, um, uh, more, more conversation rearing. I think we'd have to be able to talk about ways to be able to increase access to, to kids. Because, you know, I, I would like everybody to have a Votech education, everyone that wants one, certainly. Uh, it's, it's what I've done for my, my, my whole career. Um, and, and I do I do worry that we have so many students that are looking for uh, a way to be able to um, find meaning in, in, in their careers and that we don't have opportunities for them. And one other thing um, that, you know, I've been struck by is uh, I know there's been this uh, pattern as the Vogue schools have done so well and thrived, really, you know, despite their these huge concerns at the outset of, you know, the, the, the MCAS requirement, uh, you know, critics would say part of that thriving has been they've that 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 requirement coincided roughly with the state regulation allowing for some, you know, uh, selectivity in admission. So, in especially for the regional vocational schools, which serve kind of a broader area, I know that schools like the New Bedford Voc School that you mentioned have become kind of the school of choice for students, particularly in New Bedford, the big urban district there, for college-bound students. So a lot of kids apply there and go there with the full intention to go on to a four-year school. And, and, and so there's been some concern voiced by critics of the system that the schools are kind of increasingly there's kind of a mismatch between the students they're getting through these selective admission criteria and the sort of trajectory those students are on and the frankly the workforce needs of the region which there has always been this thought that folk schools play a really key role in that in a way that traditional high schools don't yeah so we we do partner with uh, all of our vocational schools partner with the work investment boards to identify um, 
trends for employment and what the needs are in the area. Um, we we still, uh, as vocational schools, still have what would be considered your father's vocational school programs, like you know carpentry, machine shop, and so forth. But the technology that's involved in those programs now is not your father's vocational school. We also have increased because of demand for industry uh, programs like biomeds, programs like um, health careers, dental assisting, and so forth that would require students to go on beyond what we offer here to post-secondary training or post-secondary education or college education in order to be able to get the um, requisites that they need to be able to go into those fields. So it's a broad, we have a broad range of what we offer in vocational schools now, which is much different than it was when schools were incorporated in the 60s and 70s. So uh, Senator Cronin, I'll give you maybe the last word here on, you know, what do you see as kind of the way forward here uh, through this debate? I think we need to frame the problem uh, correctly to, to come up with the right remedy. And I, I don't think either the problem or the solution is necessarily we need to create more vote seats. I, I think the better problem that all of us can collaborate and work together on at the state level, at the local level, is how do we build more career and vocational training capacity for those headed directly into the labor force who don't have any access to it right now? Um, and I think this is a, a, an area where me and Karen um, completely agree. I think there's there's an incredible amount of op opportunity for collaboration between comprehensive high schools and vocational schools to to, to develop relationships um, and, and especially target juniors and seniors who um, maybe don't who are at comprehensive high schools who don't have plans to uh, pursue higher education or are looking for that trade. I know when I was 13 years old, Michael, I, I wanted to be the closing pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. And, that, and that's what I was focused on. And it was realistic to me. John Papelbon was 23. Um, I would be 23 in 10 years. I could take over for him. Um, as a rising junior, though, I, I think I, you know, I batted 230 that year. I didn't, I wasn't allowed to pitch batting practice. Um, my goals became more realistic. And I think that is when we really need to engage the state's population about what skills and, and develop capacity to meet our labor market's needs. But I think that's the time, the rising juniors and seniors at our comprehensive high schools, I think we can make a really significant investment across the state to, to build that vocational capacity. And I think, uh, the mechanism to do that already exists. The workforce skills cabinet that Governor Baker created um, is the vehicle to deliver those grants. I think we can do it in the poorest communities uh, at the high schools with the highest number of students entering the labor force. And I think we can get really surgical and targeted in terms of what programs we develop. And I think that's both the most efficient way to do it. And I think it's the best deal for taxpayers too. Yeah, I think you're right on the money with that. We have, a, as part of that initiative, we have programs here at Tri-County, and, and part of our recruitment is to go out to our, our communities, to the sending schools for 11th graders and 12th graders and say, hey, you know, we have this opportunity for you here. Uh, when when you graduate, come on and, and take advantage of it. So yeah, you're right. Well, uh, thanks to you both for a good conversation, and uh, we'll be tracking uh, how this all gets resolved in, in, in the weeks and months ahead. But in the meantime, I want to thank you, uh, Superintendent Karen McGuire from the Tri-County Regional Vocational Technical High School for joining us. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And it was nice to meet you both. 
and Senator John Cronin of Fitchburg. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Michael. And, and thank you, Karen. And thank you all for listening to another episode of the podcast. We will see you next week.